If you're taking uh, notes this morning, you can use the inside of the bulletin. We've consolidated a few things that usually made for a very busy bulletin. Uh, so the study notes and the sermon outline and all that stuff is included there inside the bulletin. Special thanks to Pam Fowler, our office manager and publications director, for uh, helping us make things a little easier to keep a bunch of things uh, handy in one place. <clears throat> We're in week three of our 3C Life series, and each year for at least just a few weeks, we like to sort of revisit our church's mission and how we verbalize and work out our big picture kingdom goals to which God has called us. For us, that's the three C's. Those three C's are listed on the front of your bulletin there. And they are our three main priorities here at First Christian. It's the reason we exist. We exist to be a place where we celebrate God, where we cultivate growth, and where we communicate the gospel. And uh, this week, in our third week of 3C Life, we're talking about what it means to communicate uh, the gospel. Now, I want to acknowledge up front that communicating the gospel is a big, big topic. It's a very broad kind of concept. It includes lots of concepts and ideas and even commands for believers. And it's, it's one about which I am personally very passionate. This is part of the Christian life that is, a, that is a big deal for us. And it's also, unfortunately for many believers, it's kind of one of those parts that are, that's hard to embrace a lot of believers, frankly, don't always embrace the truth that we are called to be people who speak and act and breathe and move and live out of a place that communicates the gospel. It's an important and sort of a lofty subject that I am totally unable to cover in one week. So we're going to uh, use this as a launching pad for a four-week series coming up called uh, Communicating the Gospel. And we're going to break that down into four weeks starting next week. This is on the inside of your, uh, your bulletin there. The four weeks are defining the gospel, defending the gospel, declaring the gospel, and demonstrating the gospel. If you'll remember, our third C is about communicating the gospel in two primary kinds of ways, in word and in deed by how we interact with people, the way we speak, as well as the things we do, the ways we serve, the ways we behave with others. Those two kinds of things are the last two of those four weeks. You'll notice it's about declaring the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. That's sort of how we communicate the gospel in word and in deed, and we'll cover those at the end of our four weeks there. And uh, for the first couple of weeks, We'll just sort of uh, talk in simple terms. This is the gospel to which we're calling people and not something else. And then we'll talk about some ways to defend that and uh, to equip you with a few little tools in week two uh, to really make you look like an intellectual nerd. It'll be fun. This is such a broad and big and important topic that it's simply not just a matter of narrowly defining it as uh, an issue of whether or not we are inviting somebody to church or even to a relationship with Christ. If only it were that easy. 
You see, what we want to communicate in this, this concept is that it's about the many ways, all of the many ways that we communicate the gospel with our whole lives. And it's not just about uh, evangelism in that traditional sense. It's about everything that we call our own actually being God's and living as if that were the case. I would say that again because it's a key part of us learning to communicate the gospel. It's getting straight this idea that it's about living as if we really believe that all these things that we call our own actually belong to God and were created for His purposes and not for ours. Tell that to an individualistic, red-blooded American who is told from birth that it's about their liberty. It's a hard concept for us to get straight in our minds. This is about our time, our resources, our money, our families, the words we use, the way we drive, the service we render. It's about all these sorts of ways that our lives are created to be about God's mission of reconciling the world to Himself. So if you're taking notes, this is the first blank in your outline there. Our third C is about communicating the gospel, being about all the ways in which our lives participate, that's the blank there, all the ways our lives participate in God's mission to reconcile the world to Himself. Reconciliation, this reconciling is about restoring broken relationship. If you're taking notes, you might want to circle that and put restoring broken relationship. That is ultimately what all of our lives, resources, and time, and words, and deeds are to be about when we communicate on the outside what we know God has done on the inside. The cool thing about this important part of the Christian life is that it's, it's about being part of a universal rectifying of the imbalance that we all see and experience. We see and we experience that kind of brokenness in our lives, in our relationships, in the world. And we get to participate with God in rectifying that kind of imbalance. We're not going to unpack all that that means right now. We'll talk about that a little more. But I've highlighted this word participate in, as the blank there. Because that's what we are called to do as new creatures. Being a new creature is about participation. It's about joining forces with God in His already started mission. It's about participating in the reclamation of what is already God's. This is about our lives as offerings that reflect the goodness and the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God so that people can see that in you and in me and in us as a church body and say, that's why God is who He claims to be. And today I want to focus on one particular part of this that I think is key. We'll talk about how and why. We'll talk about exactly what the gospel is. We'll talk about those things. But there's one critical thing I think we need to get down first before we move on to what does it mean to communicate the gospel. In order for us to get this straight, we must recognize 
the authority of Jesus Christ over our whole lives. We must believe that our lives are truly not our own. You see, I think this is where Christians really begin to get hung up. I don't think believers don't communicate the gospel because it's about the mechanics of not having all the right answers or, or avoiding embarrassment or not wanting to uh, make someone else feel uncomfortable. We, we say those kinds of things as, as the reasons why we don't evangelize, as the reasons why we don't communicate the gospel. But I don't think it's about that primarily. I think those are symptoms. I think that is symptomatic of the fact that we don't truly believe that he has authority over all of our lives. The problem is that Christians don't truly believe in the authority of Jesus Christ to tell them what to do and how to live, how to spend their money, and what to do with their time. Many believers in America are still in love, promiscuously in love, with the lies from the world about the American dream and capitalistic visions of comfort that lure them away from using their lives as they were called to be used for the sake of God's glory and kingdom and not yours and mine. I want to give you a little mini-theology and then we'll jump into uh, Matthew here. A little mini-theology in about 30 seconds of why your life is not your own. If you want to write down some scriptures, I'm going to name a few off here. A little mini-theology in 30 seconds of why your life was never your own in the first place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a famous verse that says, If anyone is in Christ, if anyone takes on the name of, of Christ, calls themselves a Christian, then that person is a new creation. We are new creatures. Whether you were before something else doesn't matter. Whatever you were before, whatever you were living before Christ, your BC years, you are now something entirely different. Romans 12 says that we are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices, as our spiritual act of worship. In other words, when you worship God, your whole personhood is a sacrifice to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 calls us, I love this phrase, it calls us ministers of reconciliation. And this idea of our lives being intended for participation in His mission isn't just a New Testament thing. It's not just the church all of a sudden is about reconciliation. He's been doing this from the dawn of time, friends. In Genesis 12, he called Abram to set his old life aside, his old purposes and goals, to be about something that was God's agenda for his life. He says in 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. If what we do here together is not about being a blessing for the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ, then what's it for? We were given are given so much more than we can possibly imagine. We have everything we possibly need right here for the edification of the body and to communicate the gospel with effectiveness in Greville. It's already in this room right now. So we must, we must get this straight. 
Because if we are going to be people who are using our God-given and God-owned gifts and talents and money and time and words and behavior, if we are going to use these for the sake of His kingdom, we must, and this is the next blank, we must view our entire lives and our participation in communicating the gospel through the lens of the authority of Jesus Christ over all creation. We must filter who we are. Our identity, our stuff, is no longer ours. It's His. It always has been. And we must view our lives through the lens of the authority of His claim on us. The implications of this concept are huge. And I want you to be thinking about them all week long. I want you to be praying about it, thinking about it. I want this one fact to stick in your craw all week long. Because it's the authority of Jesus Christ over all creation to call us to be about the purposes of His glory. It's the only thing worth living for, friends. Everything else is a, is a short sell. It's a waste of our time. Let's go ahead and pray before we get into the passage today. Lord, we call you because confidently we know that you have told us that you will meet with us in power as we gather because we are your people. And Lord, we, <clears throat> we want to be people who are unleashed from this place and from this gathering as changed people with a new vision for our purpose and our lives and our goals. Lord, we repent. We repent for creating kingdoms of our own. And ask that your Spirit would renew us and would shape us and give us a larger vision for what you want to do with our lives and this church and the world so that we could enjoy the kind of life that gives you glory and that seeks after your purposes so that we could live in that sweet spot of knowing contentment and intimacy of relationship with you. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to make known to us your claim of authority over all parts of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Yeah, I was a long intro, sorry, but this is something about which we cannot, we cannot continue to talk about. How many of you uh, remember the old speak and spell computerized toy? Any old speak and spell users out there? Speak and spell was uh, this little device, for those of you who are 30 and younger, was this little device um, that's about as big as a laptop now, practically, um, where you would, uh, you would spell the word that it told you to spell. This is, this is groundbreaking. Spell the word it told you to spell, and it would say if you were right or not. Technological wonder at the time. Uh, now we have on the palm, uh, in the palm of our hand or on our wrist, uh, computers that are 200 times more powerful than the speak and spell. You would also be able to, uh, 
spell the word and it would say it to you. You could spell in a word. And, and this little boy named Matthew, he was about five years old in the old school days of 1950. Uh, he got a speak and spell for Christmas and he started spelling the typical five-year-old words like mom and dad and cat and, and dog. And uh, little Matthew was playing with his new Christmas present and his mom was hearing him in the other room as he was pecking away at the keyboard. He would type a word and wait for it. And he's finally typed the word G-O-D. Well, the computer turned for a few moments and thought about it. And it finally responded with saying, error, word not found. And so little Matthew was like, how can this computer not know who God is? Put in G-O-D again. It thought for a second. Same response. Error, word not found. Mom heard little Matthew from the other room as he stared at the computer in disgust and he declared, Jesus is not going to like this. <laughs> in the passage for today called the Great Commission, it begins with a phrase we're going to focus on at the beginning of Matthew 28, which if it's true, Matthew was far more on target than he knew. Reread the beginning of Matthew 28 there for just a second. This is verse 18. And if you remember, Jesus is about to leave his, his, his disciples behind. The church is about to begin. And as he's doing that, he commissions them. He sends them off to go communicate the gospel in all the various ways that that would happen. But before he does, this critical piece of the puzzle is what he says. Verse 18, it says this, Jesus came and He said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Now think about that for just a second here. That is quite a statement. It leaves no room for debate it's not, I feel or I think. It's not, most opinion polls say. It's not even might be. It's a straightforward, declarative statement of truth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a scope. The scope of that claim is beyond everything that we know and experience and imagine. We can't even grasp everything that exists here on earth with our finite minds. All authority, not just here, but heaven and earth. At the end of that verse there, it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus uses a word here. He uses a couple of words put together very specifically that mean everything and every place. He uses words to intentionally say everything you can think of, everywhere you've ever been, that's the authority on which I stake my claim. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The psalmist, of course, is saying nowhere. There is no place. One writer puts it this way. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. 
This belongs to me. And if that is true, no one and nothing is exempt. No one in the world stands outside the authority of Jesus. The richest man, the most powerful woman, the most popular rock star, the greatest athlete, all answer to the authority of Jesus. And if this is true, then someday every single one of us everywhere will be held accountable for how we have reacted to that one claim. There are lots of ways that we see the truth of Jesus' claim of authority. First, it's the witness of history. The witness of history testifies to this claim. One historian put it quite well when he said this, 19 long centuries have come and gone, and today I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life in all of history. Every time you date a check, every time you note the date of your own birth, every time you turn the page of a calendar, you and I give silent testimony to the fact that Jesus changed the course of history into two times, before Him and after Him. I don't care if you say B-C-A-D, B-C-E-C-E, A-B-C-X-Y-Z. There is no change of verbiage or words that will erase the fact that history is divided and our own lives are divided into before Him and after Him. His authority in teaching testifies to the claim. Even at the age of 12, young Jesus astounded the religious teachers who had been studying this their whole lives. He amazed people with his teachings because they said he spoke as one with authority and not as other religious teachers. Common people flocked to hear his words. He astounded the politicians and the kings. He bewildered his opponents by the way he reflected their own criticisms of him. The way he taught testified to this claim. His own life and the demonstration of his power testified to the claim that he has all authority. He lived a life of goodness and mercy. Even the ruler who ordered his own execution could find no wrong in him. He healed the sick, made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. Lame men walked at his call and his word. He stilled storms and He raised the dead. And the world then and now was filled with charlatans and magicians who claimed supernatural power. Didn't, didn't just claim it. Jesus didn't go around just claiming it. He demonstrated it. And they were evidence of His ability to do what no one else possibly could, which is forgive sin and perform the greatest miracle of reconciling people to proper relationship with God. And if history and the teachings of Christ and the demonstration of His power taken together mean that there is no way anyone could believe that He simply did not claim all authority. C.S. Lewis uh, made this point well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. It's a famous quote. 
He says, no one can logically claim that Jesus was just a great moral teacher and yet not accept him as God. This is one thing we must not say, he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come away with any of the patronizing nonsense about him being simply a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Here's the irony. Jesus isn't talking to people who didn't already know him in the Great Commission. He's talking to people who had followed him, who called him Lord, and who had no idea of the kinds of sacrifices they would be called to make on his behalf. If you had, if you had even possibly fathomed the kind of sacrifices that the disciples were going to have to make, would you have said, yes, let me follow you, Jesus? This isn't just for people who don't know him. This is for people who do not yet call him Lord in practice, though they do in name. And it's demonstrative of churches all over the land that they claim his lordship with their lips, and yet their lives, their gifts, their service rendered, their money, and their time show the lie to their claims. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want it to be seared into your minds this week because it is the opening words of the Great Commission. These form Jesus' parting words to his followers before they're sent out. These instructions answer once and for all the question, should the followers of Jesus Christ invest their lives or not? It's why missionaries cross mountains and oceans and borders to tell people about Jesus. His authority over our lives is why churches and Christians give our money and our resources to support colleges and seminarians to train evangelists and missionaries and preachers. It's why congregations like us give away tens of thousands of dollars a year to support people and to reach others and to teach them about the claims of Christ. Churches plant churches. Christians live Christian lives because Jesus is in charge. And his mission is more important than anything else we could possibly fathom being a part of. Believers who have been saved by the grace of God through what Jesus did for them. They pray with a burden for those who don't enjoy a relationship with God. If you know grace, you know that burden. 
Believers who have been saved by the grace of God through what Jesus did for them invite people to hear and to learn about the claims of Jesus Christ and the joys of being in intimate relationship with Him. They seek opportunities to nudge people into greater relationship with God. His one claim of all authority is a life-changing statement of global importance and significance for every nook and cranny of our lives. Everything we do as a church and as a Christian stands or falls on the claims of Jesus on our lives. And if this is true, if his claim is true, then the number one issue for every person is, am I going to acknowledge his authority? And do my best to live by it? Or am I going to go through life resisting it? And if it is true, if all authority in heaven and on earth does in fact belong to him, then we will have to deal with him sooner or later in life or in death. He is either our Lord and our Savior now, or our judge then. I want to close with some encouragement about this kind of issue because <clears throat> it's the kind of thing we all understand that unless we are empowered by the grace of God and His Holy Spirit, we will fall short. Every single one of us will struggle there aren't easy answers like, give this percentage, you're good. That's not how it works. There aren't easy answers like, if you come on Tuesday and serve for an hour, check, you've done your service, you're good. If you've given an invite card to somebody this week, check, you're good. That's not how it works. And there aren't easy answers. And it's a struggle for all of us to grow and develop into people who envision our lives in kingdom kinds of terms. And so I want to close with a little bit of encouragement. <clears throat> because in Scripture, one of the things we see is that God used a whole swath of different kinds of people powerfully for the cause of His glory. People who were quiet, people who were loud, people who were preachers, people who did the behind-the-scenes service kinds of things. If you think you're too ill-equipped or too shy or not smart enough or too sinful to be used of God for His purpose, think about the people that He used powerfully in Scripture. Moses stuttered. David's armor did not fit. Hosea married a prostitute. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor, Abraham too old, David, Timothy too young, Peter was afraid of death, Lazarus was dead, John was self-righteous, Naomi was a widow, Paul was a murderer, and so was Moses, Jonah ran from God, Miriam was a gossip and a bigot. Gideon and Thomas, they both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. 
Elijah was burned out. Martha was a worrywart. Samson had long hair. <laughs> Noah got drunk. Moses had a short fuse. So did Peter. So did Paul. So did lots of folks. Friends, at First Christian, to communicate the Gospel can mean a whole lot of things and it can mean using a whole lot of different kinds of gifts and talents and abilities wherever you are on your journey. It means to preach the Gospel with your words. It means to serve in the nursery for an hour. It means to teach. It means to make the coffee, to turn on the lights, to unlock the doors, to go on a mission trip, to pass out bulletins, to greet people at the door, to help plan an event, to make a call or a visit, to write a note, to say a prayer. We can all participate in the communication of the Gospel here and in our community. If we will just start to view our lives and our stuff in light of the truth, that Jesus' claim to authority means it's not yours in the first place. It's not your stuff. Your body is not your body. Your money is not your money. Your gifts and your talents and the ways that you serve are not your gifts. They're not your talents. They're not your means of service. It is all God's, all of it. Nothing we call our own is ours. It's all on loan. And so the question we face is what are you doing with God's creation gifted to you? What are you doing with His gifts and His talents on loan to you? And the main question for us is are you participating in His work of reconciling people to Himself? Are you participating in what he does to bring people to himself? Let's pray.